seated, if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to finish out chapter 2 uh, this morning as we're moving through this series in the book of Philippians. Uh, I know for me, as I say every week, this has been just a great book to go through. I've grown a lot in my understanding and, and uh, a lot of challenge in front of me to begin to live out. Hopefully the same for you as well uh, as we're con- continuing through the four chapters of this book. So this morning, the plan is we finish chapter 2 and uh, head on towards chapter 3, hopefully beginning next Sunday. So if you're a sports fan at all, you know that we are in the heart of football season right now. Baseball season just ended as a result of last night. Those of you that may be Houston fans, I'm sure are few and far between. But if you are, uh, you are celebrating. Those of you that are Phillies fans uh, who are maybe few and far between are probably heartbroken. And those of us who are Braves fans are glad the Phillies did not win. And so baseball season is over, right? And we are in the midst of football. However, basketball season is just around the corner. And so for those who are diehard basketball fans, NBA has already started. College is kind of right on that, right on that break line where they've already started some, some uh, exhibition play at least. And then high school season is soon to start in just the next couple of weeks. But if you are an NBA fan specifically, then you understand probably that the greatest player who's ever played, uh, I would say without argument, others would say arguably, would be a man by the name of Michael Jordan. Now back during COVID, you, uh, some of you were able to watch the 10-part documentary series called The Last Dance, which chronicled that last season of Michael Jordan that he played there in Chicago. And it was just a phenomenal series. I mean, so many neat little tidbits that came out. But one of those tidbits that came out was his experience in Game 6 of the 1997 NBA Finals. They were playing the Utah Jazz that particular year. Jordan already had four rings. He was trying to get a fifth. And, uh, and as was always the case, he was the, the man on the team. I mean, he was the player the best that ever played. And so uh, it, it was at a, in a lot of ways, the high point of his career. But this was a game six. They were playing the Utah Jazz. They didn't want it to go to a game seven. Nobody really ever does. You'd want to go ahead and close it out. They had a 3-2 lead in the series. And there in game six against the Utah Jazz, kind of their, their nemesis, uh, the game was tied with about 10 seconds to go, 86 to 86. Well, there was a timeout, and Jordan's on the bench. And as Coach Jackson, Phil Jackson, is talking, he leans over to a role player on the team by the name of Steve Kerr. Now, Steve Kerr would go on to greater popularity as the current coach of Golden State, but at that point, he was just a scrawny little guard that was nowhere near the status, in basketball terms at least, as Michael Jordan. He was a role player. He was a very good role player, but, uh, but he was not Michael Jordan. Well, during that time out on the bench, Jordan leans over to, uh, to Steve Kerr, and he has a brief conversation. The conversation is this. He says, listen, they are doubling down on me when I get the ball down low. Stockton, who was, you know, one of the guards on the Utah team, leaves his man, always doubles me up. If he does this again, I'm coming to you, be ready. And it's interesting because in that documentary, there's this clip of Steve Kerr, this this role player, and uh, he gives the thumbs up to Jordan. He's like, I'll be ready, I'll be ready. And uh, and sure enough, they, you know, the the, uh, timeout's over, they inbounds the ball, and uh, Jordan gets the ball, he pump fakes, he drives towards the lane, Stockton leaves his man, drops down low, just like he had expected, and Jordan kicks a pass out, hits Kerr wide open for a 70, or for a 17-foot jumper, and ultimately nails down his fifth ring for Michael Jordan. It's interesting because when you think about that particular win, people still remember Kerr, right, that he hit this shot, the biggest shot of his whole entire career, but we don't talk so much about that shot. We talk about the fact that Michael Jordan's the greatest to ever play the game and that he would end up winning another ring to total six in number. 
But it was Steve Kerr who was his go-to guy. And all the way back during the time out, he knew this is a man that I can depend on. This is a man who's put in the work. This is a man who can shoot the ball, right, 45% from three-point land that season. And this is a man who has ultimately proven himself that when I go to him, he's going to be able to deliver. It's a principle that we see often in our lives where all of us come to a place to where we need a go-to person in our lives. And I wonder for you, as those wheels begin to turn, who's the go-to person for you? When you begin to think of your life kind of encapsulated, who through the years has been a go-to for you? Maybe it's been a friend, a friend since grade school or since high school or since college that you know is kind of that 2 a.m.er, that whenever you, uh, you know, have an issue in the middle of the night, you can pick up their, you know, that phone and, and you can dial them specifically and they're going to be on the other end to come to your rescue, right? They're a go-to person for you. Who do you have in your life that fills that role? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe you're a business owner. Maybe you're a, uh, a boss or a supervisor, and you've learned through the years, right, that, that whenever the deadline comes, whenever there's something that has to be done and the work has to be accomplished, a lot of employees you know you can't go to, but there at the midnight hour, you know that one or two people that work under your leadership, that, that whenever it's crunch time and you've got to get the work done, there's that one or two people that are the go-to people for you. And they're going to get it done, and you can offer them extra pay, or you can offer a bonus or an extra vacation day or whatever, but they're the go-to people that you've come to, to uh, appreciate because they're proven and they're faithful and they're dependable, right? So we, we turn the... The, the, the tables just a little bit, rather than thinking through who is the go-to person in my life, ask yourself, is there anyone else right now in the room thinking about you as their go-to person? Is there anyone that if I were to ask the question to the people in your circles of influence, right, the people who know you best, if I were to ask them, hey, who's a go-to person in your life, that person that's proven and dependable and faithful, who, who, who's there when you need them the most, would your name come to mind for them? And even, let's, let's go a, fur, a little bit further, when we think about advancing the message of the gospel, right, which is a, a huge call of the local church, a huge call of every single believer, when we think about advancing the message of the gospel, could the local church depend on you to be proven and to be faithful and to be true as it comes to doing the most important work in all of existence, and that is getting the message of the gospel to people who need to hear now, here's the thing. Whenever we begin to roll through the end of Philippians chapter 2, what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to talk in, in, literally in name about two specific people who were his go-to people. And they would have these same qualities. They were proven. They were dependable. They were faithful. That You could go to them whenever you had a need. And they were go-to people ultimately for Paul. But what we begin to see are the qualities that they embodied or qualities that God wants in every single one of us. But what we have to understand first is that the, the intent of the, of the message of the gospel was never to create this, this uh, kind of an echelon of leaders who were the professionals who carried the responsibility of advancing the gospel to where it needs to go. That was never the intent of the message of the gospel, never the intent of, of the New Testament, never God's ideal that the advance of the gospel would only fall to a, a chosen few who would carry somewhat the title of professional right? It's not the result of the professionals, right? The missionaries or the seminary, you know, professors or pastors or those in vocational ministry. It's not because of the efforts of that group of people that so many have heard the message of the gospel. It's because of those who are everyday followers of Jesus who ultimately get the message of the gospel where it needs to go. 
And we see this, if you move a little bit further back, away from Philippians, don't leave Philippians completely, but go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just remind ourselves of something before we get into Philippians chapter 2. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we begin to see that gospel ministry was advanced not by the professionals, but by those who were everyday followers of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, look at this next part, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has reconciled us. What does that mean? He's made us right with himself through Jesus. When we gave our lives to Jesus, we were brought near to God. Our brokenness, our broken relationship was resolved. It was fixed. It was reconciled. And at the same time that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, he also gave us not just forgiveness, not just a home in heaven waiting for us, but he gave us a ministry, every one of us, right? The ministry of reconciliation. Look down in verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador to do? It, an ambassador represents the interests of the one who sent them, right? We as ambassadors represent a new king. His name is Jesus, a new kingdom. It's his kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this. As though God were making an appeal through us. Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, that passage that I just read. So I wonder, did the early church really grasp this? We'll look over in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Don't give up on Philippians. We're coming there, right? Acts chapter 2. Did the church really grasp this truth that the advance of the gospel was not just for the resident professionals, but it was the role and the call of every single follower of Jesus? Look at what happens here, verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. It says, So then those who had received his word, that being Simon Peter, he'd preached the message of the gospel here. This is after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to the Father. It says those who had received his word were baptized. That same day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 3,000 people in one sitting chose to follow Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. Phenomenal. He says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common, right? There was a unity that was there. And they began selling their property and possessions. They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Their relationship with God dominated their lives. And it says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is not the professionals. If you want to say there's a professional in the mix, maybe Simon Peter. I mean, he was a former disciple, now apostle. He preached the message of the gospel. 3,000 placed their faith in Jesus. The gospel advanced not because Simon Peter was such an amazing spreader of the gospel. The gospel advanced because the thousands of people who chose to follow Jesus got it out to the masses. And they did it so well. Look over in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. 
It says the word of God, Acts 6 verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Don't miss this little tidbit. There's a lot loaded into this. Number one, where are they? They're still in Jerusalem. Where was Jesus crucified? Just outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is not the next generation. This is not a couple of generations later. This is not the next century. This is the same generation, just a brief period of time between all the events that went down when Jesus was crucified and and now this is happening in the same city, Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified. What we find now is this pocket of believers that have now given their lives to Jesus are taking taking the ownership to spread the message of the gospel. They're not saying let the 11 disciples do it and let's throw in Matthias, number 12, who was just added in, because after all, they're the professionals. They're the ones who walk with Jesus. Let's let them do it. That was not the mentality. They said, this is now our faith, and we have an obligation and a responsibility and a call to go share the message of this gospel with those who are around us. And it was so significant that the priests, are you kidding me, in the same temple, in the same city where Jesus was crucified, just a small matter of time before that the priests now were becoming obedient to the faith, to this new faith called Christianity. Not because Simon Peter was a great preacher, but because people understood the simple truth that they had a role to play in the advance of the gospel. Check out this principle. I hope you'll jot it down, and I hope, you'll, I hope, I hope this bothers us a little bit because I believe this principle is true. And it's an issue in so many, many churches. One of the biggest gaps of understanding in the local church, one of the things that that often gets missed, one of the biggest gaps of understanding in the local church is the simple understanding that every believer plays a crucial role in the advance of the gospel. Not just the pastors, not just the worship leaders, not just the staff members, not just the uh, visiting missionaries, not just the professionals, right? But that every single follower of Jesus plays an absolute crucial role in seeing the message and the ministry of the gospel ultimately advanced. In other words, every single one of us should be go-to people when it comes to partnering with God in his mission in this world. Every one of us. So Paul is writing the book of Philippians He's writing the book of Philippians about 11 or 12 years after he planted the church in the city of Philippi, Acts chapter 16. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read a couple of passages. If you're following me in our church app, you've got a couple of passages there in Acts 16. I'm not going to read those this morning. I'm just going to give you the brief little synopsis of what went down in Philippi when Paul planted the church. When Paul planted the church in Philippi 10 or 12 years before he wrote the letter to the Philippian church called Philippians, uh, he, he planted that church in an interesting way. He comes into the city. And uh, after a period of time, he, he goes down to the waterside there, and there's a Bible study taking place. There's a lady named Lydia. Lydia is a wealthy person. She's a, 
a seller of purple fabric, uh, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 16. And essentially, long story short, Paul shares the truth of the gospel with her, and she makes a decision not just to love God, but to specifically, intentionally surrender her life to Jesus. And she and her household are ultimately baptized to demonstrate their new faith in Jesus. And she says, hey, listen, if you uh, as ministers need a place to, to, to stay here, maybe it was kind of like as their headquarters while they're in Philippi, she said, I have room in my home. She was wealthy. She probably had, had ample room. You fast forward a little bit in Acts chapter 16, and you see the mention of another person. We, we only know, know him as the Philippian jailer. You see in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, his ministry partner there in Philippi, would be thrown into prison for their faithfulness and obedience to share the gospel. And uh, God would perform a miracle. They would be, uh, there would be an earthquake, and the prison doors would swing open, and the Philippian jailer would come in, scared out of his mind, thinking all the prisoners have escaped. The Roman authorities are going to execute me for letting these prisoners out. Paul says, hey, chill. We're all okay. We're right here. Nobody has gone anywhere. And he says, tell me, how can I be saved? Right? He knew the message of the gospel because he had heard it from Paul and Silas. And they share the message of Jesus with him. And that Philippian jailer not only places his faith in Jesus, but takes Paul and Silas to his own home. And his whole household is ultimately saved. And, uh, and they begin to tend to the wounds of Paul right there in his own house, Acts 16 tells us. And so I wonder, I put all that together, and I wonder when Paul then writes 12 years later this book called Philippians, he himself is in jail, imprisoned in Rome, chained to the wall or to a member of the Praetorian Guard, a Roman soldier. And as Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church 10 or 12 years after all the events happened when he planted that church, I wonder, because we didn't have church buildings until the 3rd or the 4th century, I wonder if that church in Philippi is gathered in the home of Lydia. And they're gathered around kind of like this, right? There are maybe not even this many people. And they're there in Philippi in Rome. We've got a letter. Everybody gathered together. I wonder if they were in Lydia's home. I wonder if they were in the Philippian jailer's home. But they were in somebody's home more than likely. And they gather together and they begin to read through this letter. And what Paul tells them is, number one, how much God loves them and how much he loves them and how his heart beats for them and he longs to see the beginning. He prays for them and he shares with them how, how they need to live a life worthy of the gospel, to put Jesus on display in the lives they live. And by, by the way, you've got, a, got an example. His name is Jesus and, and his humility is the, be, the humility that you're supposed to embody. And so get out there, he says to the Philippians in this first part of this letter, and I want you to obey and I want you to shine for him and I want you to stand on what is true and then he gets down to the end of what we would call chapter 2 and he names a couple of names and in so doing he sets an example for us of what it looks like to be a person who's dependable and faithful and proven that our church can say about us that's a go-to person as it relates to the gospel. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 19, kind of a lengthy passage of Scripture. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, verse 30, and then we're going to move through somewhat quickly, but we'll break down those verses as we go. So verse 19, let's read this whole passage. Paul writes and he says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Remember, Paul's in jail and more than likely in Rome. He's in prison for the gospel. He's writing to the Philippian congregation. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit, speaking of Timothy, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. 
But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you'd heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him only, but also on me, so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and may be less concerned, and I may be less concerned about you. So receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Paul names two names, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, we can learn from chapter 1, verse 1 in Philippians, was actually with Paul there in that Roman prison. Now, we don't know if Timothy was locked up as well or if Timothy was allowed access to Paul to help care for his needs while Paul was imprisoned. But chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Timothy was with Paul. In fact, he writes a letter, I, Paul, and Timothy, right? The letter is actually from both of them. So Timothy was there with Paul. Epaphroditus, now Epaphroditus is a little bit different, and we're going to see in a second. Epaphroditus was from the church in Philippi. This is the only place in the Bible, really, where we read of Epaphroditus. There's another fellow in one of Paul's letters named Epaphras, probably not the same person. This is about the only mention of Epaphroditus. He was a part, we can assume, and I'll show you why in just a second, he was a part of the church in Philippi, who had been sent by the church with, uh, with, with some resources for Paul, like a care package. We don't know what was in it. Maybe, uh, maybe it was financial in nature. Maybe there were some things that Paul needed. I don't know. Maybe there were some $100,000 bars, Snickers, Reese's Pieces. Who knows? But he sent this gift. And so the Philippian church, if you look at chapter 4, verse 18, look at what it says. The Philippian church sends this little care package to Paul in prison. They use Epaphroditus as the messenger to deliver it because he was part of their church. And then when Paul sends the letter back, or what Paul does is he writes this letter to the Philippians and he sends it back to him through Epaphroditus. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. There's Timothy, one go-to guy, right there with Paul as he's imprisoned in Rome, and he mentions Epaphroditus, a fellow from the church in Philippi, who delivers not just a care package, but then takes the letter written to the Philippians, and he delivers it to them upon his return. And in between, he gets deathly ill while he's gone. How cool is it, by the way, we need to thank God for this, that we get to read this very letter that he wrote 2,000 years ago right here in our Bibles. 2,000 years later, it's such a treasure. Both of these men were examples of what Paul would have already described in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as men who obeyed, they shined for Christ, and they stood firm for the gospel. Both of them were proven, they were dependable, they were devoted, they were faithful. Timothy's story is somewhat interesting. Timothy had a mixed heritage. Timothy's mother was Jewish by heritage. His father was Greek. 
He was raised up in the Scriptures. Paul would say in one of his letters to Timothy that it was his mother and his grandmother who had poured into him. Timothy had a Bible background, so to speak. He probably went to Awana if they had that, or he would have gone to Olympians. He never missed a VBS and probably went to, you know, their version of New Orleans every summer on a student trip. Timothy was kind of like raised up in the church. He had that knowledge of the Scriptures. Most believe he was led to Paul in Paul's first missionary journey, 46 to 48 A.D., Uh, there when he went through a little town called Lystra. Paul got treated very badly in the town of Lystra, but one of the shining points of that was that Timothy was from that town, placed his faith in Jesus, and would later become a true fellow servant alongside of Paul. Paul speaks highly of him. If you look down again in verse 20 there in Philippians chapter 2, look at some of the things he says. Tell me if you don't think he's a go-to person for Paul and for the message of the gospel. He says of Timothy, Philippians 2 verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I'm going to send Timothy to you in a little bit, Paul says. When he gets there, man, you're going to be blown away because I don't know of anybody else. I don't have anybody else on my contact list that's going to have as genuine concern for your welfare than this man named Timothy. Those are big words. Can anybody say that about you? Hey, I'm going to send your name to you because I can't think of anybody else who has a heart for you as much as this person. They're going to love you. They're going to care for you. They're going to serve you. Look at verse 21. Paul goes on and he says of Timothy, for all the others, right, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. The picture there is that Timothy had this prioritization, this priority that he had granted to the person of Jesus in his life, to the gospel. Verse 22, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Paul would at some point before he wrote the letter to the Philippians, uh, he would utilize Timothy in the city of Corinth. Timothy was proven. Timothy loved the Lord. And it wasn't just a worth and a value. It was a proven worth and a value. See, when you think about it, there's, there's, there's faith and there's proven faith, Right? It's one thing for a person to say, oh, I have faith, I'm just believing and I'm trusting. It's another person who has been through the absolute valley, through the darkness, and when they could not see anything in front of them spiritually, they did not know what next step to take. All they knew was their faith in Jesus, and they trusted him, and Jesus brought them out of the darkness and into the light, took them out of the hardship and into a place of deliverance, right? That's a proven faith. Paul says of Timothy, he says, he has proven worth. I have seen him in action in difficult circumstances. He's been in Corinth. We know the issues in that church, right? He has proven himself. He is a go-to person. Verse 23, Paul would look at what he says. He says, therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Here's an interesting thought. Let's just think about this for just a second. If, if Paul was writing the book of Philippians and he's wanting to deliver it, get it to the, to the Christians in the city of Philippi, he's in Rome. He needs to get it to the Philippian believers. We know he sent it by Epaphroditus. Why didn't he send it by Timothy, right? I mean, Timothy sounds like the man. I mean, he's proven. He's been a companion of Paul's. He's served in ministry elsewhere. Why didn't he send the letter by Timothy? Here's why. And you can see it there. He says that I'm going to send him immediately, soon, as soon as I see how things go with me. In other words, I don't know if I want to stay in this Roman prison for much longer. I don't know if they're going to let me out. As we saw earlier in this book, I really hope they let me out because I want to be able to minister more to you, but I don't know what's going to happen. If I die, I win. If I, if I live, I win. Either way, I'm going to win, but I don't know what's coming. So I want Timothy here with me to tend to my needs, to help me, to encourage me. Why? Because Timothy's my go-to guy. 
He's proven and he loves the Lord and he loves me and he cares for me. And he's there when I need him. He's the 2 a.m. guy that I can call when I need it. And he's not going to just say, I'm going to pray for you. He's going to show up and be there for me. Paul says, this is my guy right here. This is Timothy. You look at Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was a little bit different. Look down in verse 25 in chapter 2. Paul says, but I thought it necessary, right, since Timothy's going to stay with me a little bit longer, to send to you Epaphroditus. And again, he doesn't say it here, but it's understood that when he sent Epaphroditus, he sent him with this letter in his back pocket. Look how he describes him. He's my brother, right? There's a kinship, a bond that comes through our shared relationship with Jesus. He says he's a fellow worker. Both of those words important. He's a worker in the, miss- in the message, in the mission of the gospel, but he's also a fellow worker. But that, that would carry with it a, a kinship, a partnership that Paul and Epaphroditus had together. But then he also says in verse 25, and he's also a fellow soldier. Paul's not talking about military service. Paul is more than likely talking about those instances where maybe we didn't read his name elsewhere in Scripture. But when Paul would maybe go into a city somewhere and get beat black and blue and carried out to the city limits and left for dead. And we don't know, his name was never mentioned, but maybe it was in some of those instances, Paphroditus was right there with him. And they get up and they go into the next city. And they share the same message, right? We don't know the details, but apparently Epaphroditus's mindset was such so similar to Paul's, that it was all about getting the gospel to those who needed to hear. And in the midst of the spiritual battles, Paul can say, we've been there arm in arm. He's my fellow soldier. Now, here's the thing about Epaphroditus. There's no mention in the Bible that he was ever a pastor. There's no mention in the Bible that he was ever a deacon. There's no mention in the Bible that he was ever a missionary. He was never a synagogue professor. (laughs) Right. You don't ever have anything that holds out this list of what he had accomplished or any acclaim or any of that. This is what we get about Epaphroditus, the testimony of a man named Paul who says, this is who he is. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. Right? He's my brother. He is dependable. He is faithful. He is proven. He's, he's a go-to guy. And he wasn't one of the professionals. He was just another guy who had given his life to Jesus whose life was radically changed to the point to where he understood that advancing the gospel is not just for the professionals, but every believer has a part to play in that as well. To the point to where he did it so well, Paul could say, I'm going to be sending him back to you. Now look at what he says a little bit further. If you go down to verse uh, Verse 26, it says, he was longing for you all. He was distressed because you'd feared or that you'd heard that he was sick. Verse 27, indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. I didn't want him to die, right? My heart would have been broken if he had died, Paul says. We don't know what the illness was, but it was so significant where he could have lost his life. The Philippian believers had heard about it. They're like, man, this is, our, this is our guy. Man, he's one of us. He's from our church, and now he's over in Rome, and he's about to die. You know, we don't want him to die. Paul says, he's doing better. I'm sending him back, and he's going to be okay. Of course, they would read this letter as they're gathered together, and there they, there they would celebrate that it was none other than Epaphroditus who had delivered the letter himself. Verse 28, he says, Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you can rejoice 
and I may be less concerned about you. He was, he was proven. He was faithful. He was passionate. He was a go-to man. Paul says, verse 29, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, Paul's not slamming the Philippians. This is not a backhanded swipe. You know, he did what y'all couldn't do for me. You know, No, they, they couldn't minister to him as the way, in the same way Epaphroditus did. Epaphroditus, they did minister to him through the gift that he sent. Paul was saying he was valuable to me in a way that not every one of you could just uproot and come to be by my side. And he could. You know what's you know what's interesting? When you look at that verse verse thirty, he says he came close to death for the work of Christ. That could mean that Epaphroditus maybe he picked up an illness or some type of a disease or something as a result of his traveling in the first century. Maybe that's what it meant, literally physical illness. Or what Paul could be referring to there is, you know what, guys? I'm chained to a Roman guard here in Rome for sharing the message of the gospel, the same message that this man also holds to, and he's showing up in my cell who could have easily had himself locked up and chained up and his life executed as well. And that was the kind of guy Epaphroditus was. We don't ever read about him anywhere else. He wasn't a professional, but he invested everything in furthering the gospel. And there were a list of people just like him in Paul's life. He had Barnabas, he had Silas, he had Titus. Titus he calls somewhat of a son in the faith. Forty different people that Paul mentions throughout his letters who were ordinary people that were ultimately go-to people for Paul. Some you've heard of, Aquila, Priscilla, we read of in the book of Acts. People like uh, not just Epaphroditus, but Aristarchus, uh, um, uh, Sopater, Tychicus. I mean, those are names. We, like, who, who are these people? Paul names them. Forty people that we can read of that Paul can say, these are go-to people for me. They didn't have some great accomplishment. They didn't have some great talent. They were just proven and dependable and faithful, and they were there. And one of the biggest gaps in the local church today is that gap in our understanding that the advance of the gospel and the gospel ministry, listen, is not just for the professionals. It's for every one of us. And the gospel advancing is dependent on people in the, in, on the platform preaching the gospel and people in the pew, so to speak, advancing it as well. So let me ask you a question as we close. Are you a go-to person? as it relates to gospel ministry, like what we've just looked at. Is this church stronger? Is this church more effective because of what you add? Can it be said of you that the church here, this church, we'll just talk about this one because this is where we are. Can, can it be said of you that this church is, 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 the people here are more served because of what you add? Right? God doesn't call any of us to save the whole world. He just calls us to be faithful and obedient where he's planted us. Can it be said there's a missionary in your neighborhood because you're there? Every one of us called to live on mission. Paul names two of them by name. One we've heard of, Timothy, another, maybe not. But they set an example of what it looks like when we as believers understand that God wants to use me in this fallen world to make a difference as I live out the gospel, living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And as I 
you can do this. It's the pattern that he's used for 2,000 years of church history. You can do this because his spirit will do the work through you if you let him. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I wonder in your heart today, Christian, if you'd be willing to say, Lord, I want to be this kind of a person. I want to be a go-to person that's dependable and that's proven, who loves people, who's available to people. I want to have that kind of a mindset that I'm not just here taking up space in this, in this world, earning a paycheck and living out my life. But Lord, I want to live with an intentionality. I want to advance your, your work and your mission. I want to be an ambassador, Lord, that you use, who represents you in this world and represents you uh, to others in this world. I, I want to be a go-to person that you can use. I wonder how many here would say as believers that, Lord, I want to live my life on mission every day. I want to be an everyday missionary that wherever you put me in the places where I live and where I work and where I go to school, where I play, and where I hang out, I want to be a representative of you there. Or would you be willing today to tell him that? Because the only other alternative for us as Christians is just to see church as a place where we show up and just to try to soak in as much as we can so that we can grow in our intellect and our knowledge, which are both good. I mean, those are good things. But the only other alternative to living on mission is just being here for us. And the picture of the New Testament is just not that. It's about growing because we need to grow, but it's also about going because we're sent. And so, Lord, help us to be those kind of people who are proven in our faith, who are dependable. Lord, who represent you well in this world in which we live, who are faithful. And God, may the work of the gospel go further because of what we add to the mix. As you use us, knowing that it's not because of us, it's only because of you, and may you get the glory. And for any who are here, Lord, who've never made that most important decision even for themselves, Lord, right where they sit today, may they make the most important decision they'll ever make to admit their sin to you, Jesus, who came and died and rose and invite you to forgive and to take over. And Lord, we thank you that you'll do it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.